The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O everlasting God, who has ordained and constituted the services of angels and men in a wonderful order, mercifully grant that as thy holy angels always do thee service in heaven, so by thy appointment they may succor and defend us on earth through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome back. It's nice to see everyone. Uh, for the Perkins to be here from Florida. Uh, some, they, uh, Father Mark said he just really wanted to hear my lectures. So that's why he's back. And even David Shanka made it back from L.A. today, just arrived in Charlottesville, and he even wanted to hear my lecture. This is great. Uh, this is probably the, the third and final lecture on angels. Next week, uh, we're going to hopefully we'll hear from Thomas Fickley. Uh, for most, many of you know this, but Thomas Fickley is in the process of starting an Anglo-Catholic boarding school for boys. Uh, that is going to be directly under our bishop. And uh, so next week, we're going to have him present and kind of share his vision uh, about St. Dunstan's uh, school. Uh, And it's pretty exciting about the stuff that he wants to do and is uh, already working on and is pretty far along in the process. Uh, So hopefully he will be here to talk. The only caveat is that he also might have COVID. So he's going to get tested, and uh, we'll see you know, what happens this week. And uh, if not, then I'll come back. And um, Austin wanted to do a sharing time of uh, angelic and demonic stories, uh, <laughs> personal experiences. Personal experiences, which that terrifies me. Um, how, many, how many demonic twice? Two people, one, one okay, there it is. Yep. All right. So you can ask Austin about that. I don't know. Uh, what we're going to do tonight is talk about the actual actions of angels, especially in regard to their relationship with us. And if we have time, uh, then we'll move on into the actions of demons and their relations with us. And hopefully, if we have time, we'll go through some Q&A uh, at the end. So, let's begin. Uh, First, let's just kind of get an overview again of of where we're at. And what we've been seeing is that we are viewing the whole universe, the visible and the invisible, as one creation. That the universe contains both angels and men. This is not a separate reality. This is all within the reality that we know. And... This is the creation in which the life and action of angels affect men, but also the life and actions of men affect angels as well. Uh, For example, uh, the fall of the angels and then the further temptation of Satan to Eve and Adam affected our lives in a dramatic way. But then in return, the fall of man then kind of meant that angels had to take on specific roles. For example, uh, God immediately assigned an angel to guard uh, the garden, right? So there's this sense where there's this reciprocity because they're not separate in creation. This is a whole. And that's really important to see because it's so easy for us, especially as moderns, to start separating what is invisible from the visible. Uh, 
Let me give you a quote by uh, Father Bonino, who uh, wrote this incredible introduction um, to uh, angels and demons. He writes, Angels and men form one and only one universe, a structured, ordered plurality whose members, by their activity, weave among themselves multiple interpersonal connections that reinforce their unity. This is a reality in which there is not a separation between the invisible and the visible, but a reality in which there are relations going on back and forth between angels and men and men and angels. This is how God planned the creation. This is how God has worked in and throughout all of history, in all of the universe. And he's done it in a way, so the way that God has kind of created this is that God's creatures cooperate with him in order to accomplish his plan within the history of the universe. And so we, we looked at the whole hierarchy of being. Remember, we went from you know, uh, just uh, rocks up to animals, to men and to angels. And within that whole hierarchy, there are those that uh, are higher, like angels. And because of that, they have a larger role within God's plan. And angels are the foremost in that. The plan, of course, is for all creatures to reach their perfection. That's God's plan for the universe, for all creatures to reach their perfection. Even in the natural world, this means leading all nature to its perfection. And it's been long taught that angels are appointed by God over every single living thing. Every single living thing has an angel to help accomplish their natural perfection. For example, like what we call now the laws of nature, that when you drop something, gravity drags it down. That's because an angel keeps gravity going. It sustains it. And so imagine that with everything, right? That any tree grows from an acorn is because an angel has assisted that acorn to grow. There is this continual sustaining of nature appointed by God but accomplished by the angels. That's just in the natural world. But then for creatures like men and angels who are spiritual, there's more than just a natural perfection. There's a supernatural perfection which for us is perfect communion with the Trinity. Both men and angels are part of that creation, and therefore our end is the same end that angels have. Isn't that neat that men and angels have the same end? We're working towards the same end, and that is perfect unity with God. For angels, this union with God, uh, the, uh, what might be termed like kind of the history of angels, uh, it was played out in a single instant. It was one choice that they had. And after that, uh, we know uh, Satan turned a third of the angels to follow him. And the other two thirds, it's a metaphor, right? It's to show that even, even, the, even the evil here is, is nothing compared with the good still. And, but the good stayed uh, to serve God. That was their choice. And it was a single choice because of their, they are an intellectual nature, which we've talked about. Um, 
that then uh, was the single purpose of their lives from then on. And they either freely desired to do the will of God or freely desired to go against the will of God. For us, though, that process of coming into union with God, it's a process and it's played out throughout our whole lifetime. This is because humans work towards the end uh, by sensing things and then reasoning with what we've gathered from those senses and then deciding upon those things and then acting, right? Uh, it's a process. Uh, as St. Paul would put it, he would put it as a race. He said, we have to run the race well because the end in mind is not just to grow old. The end in mind is eternal life, is union with God. It's to, uh, to gain knowledge through our senses and then with all of our heart, mind, and soul to decide to use that towards love, towards God. And as we saw in the first class, for angels... They already perfectly comprehend and they live happily as creatures. Their knowledge is not a process. Remember how we, saw, we said that they look at something in a single glance and they understand it completely. We, it would take us a lifetime to understand some of the things that an angel understands in a glance. Uh, they know all natural knowledge like this, like how gravity works or whether quantum theory is real or not. You know, they, they know that instantly. That was just given to them. But they also know spiritual knowledge, the purpose of things, causes, temporal history, the reasons of why things have happened in history. They don't know it all perfectly, but they know what God has given them perfectly. Remember, I think in the first class, I told that quote by Thomas Traherne about how when an, uh, a pig will eat an acorn, and he just eats it and doesn't think of a thing. But an angel can see uh, not only where the acorn came from and the tree that it grew on, it also sees the moisture of the air that the tree was nourished upon to produce that acorn. And it knows the soil that was used to produce that acorn. And it knows that complexity of causes and effects that have created something. It knows all of that in a glance. That's angelic knowledge. There's a old German theologian um, Eckhart from the 14th, 14th century who says this, angels receive God from God in God. They receive God perfectly from God perfectly in God. So they in turn, uh, angels will the good. They, they decide to seek after the good, unless they didn't, uh, which means that they are going to love themselves, they're going to love other angels, and they're going to love God above all else. These are the creatures who, by God's providence and His grace, assist our human endeavor, our process of attaining what they've already attained. Thomas Aquinas, when he writes about God's government, how God has governed the entire world. It's a section of 13 questions. Nine of them are spent on angels. Because in Thomas's view, and, and really in, in the church's view in general, angels have, God use, use angels as his main mode of getting things done, of creating, of, uh, or not of creating, but of sustaining and working in the world to return all of creation back to him. So, what is the actual work of an angel then? 
it can come down in, in two different phrases, and they're both in our collect. The first one is what they do in heaven, as our collect says, which is to worship God. That's the first thing that an angel does. Uh, and then we saw last time how uh, some theologians have divided up all of the angels into nine different uh, orders, uh, and there's a hierarchy within that. And each order has a specific um, uh, knowledge or different characteristics, which it then passes down to others. All of that has to do with the worship of God. Uh, seraphim are known as, as the ones who love God above all else. Cherubim are known to have the most perfect knowledge of God than anything else. And those they pass down to the other orders of angels until it gets to the last order of angels, who are just called angels. And then they pass that on to man which is an interesting way. But it all starts with the worship of God. The second work of, of an angel is to assist man. That's their second work. That's their purpose. That's why, part of the reason why they're created. Um, in Hebrews, for example, uh, the author writes, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Uh, so angels, in this very general, in an overview sense, they are the ones... Uh, they give their help gives men uh, favorable conditions for men to seek God. Angels give us favorable conditions to seek God. Angels participate in the implementation of the general means of salvation, in how God is drawing people to Himself. Angels are doing that work. Uh, for example, in the Old Testament, we know that the angels gave the ministration of the law. The law was part of this long process of history of God drawing man back to him. And the angels were the ministers of the law. And we understand that from Deuteronomy, which actually states that the angels were up there on Sinai and also in the Psalms. But then later on in the New Testament, in Galatians 3, in Acts 7, and in Hebrews, they're all writing about how the angels uh, ministered the law. And then in the New Testament, we see the angels ministering, assisting Christ himself, uh, both um, in his temptation when he's at Gethsemane, uh, and then during his resurrection and ascension, they're there. Uh, and then finally, now, the angels serve the body, uh, the body of Christ that they are part of. They are assisting the body of Christ which they are part of. And who are they assisting? That would be us. I think it's helpful to view angels as ambassadors to God. That's their role. God sends them out on a mission to a foreign place to represent him and then to do what he asks them to do. Thomas says, which is really interesting, angels can't be in two places at once. Uh, why? Because God sends them somewhere. And if he sends them somewhere, then they couldn't be somewhere else at the same time because God sends them there. I just love that sort of answer. Like, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, that, though, there is conditions, though, because if you have an angel who is the angel of France, then he is a general angel over the area of France, which seems to be in many places at the same time. So there's, you know, we got to, anyways. So they're sent by God to places or to individuals for specific work to do specific acts like sustain the winds or keep gravity going or to give courage to someone or to offer an idea to someone 
an image to someone. So the first thing to consider for us is what type of places are angels sent? And in the Bible, it's really clear that uh, we can at least say that angels are set over communities at large. Uh, For example, in Daniel, he calls Michael the archangel over Israel. He is the defender of Israel. Um, And then in the New Testament, in Revelation, you have the seven angels of the seven churches of God. So angels that were placed in specifically for a mission towards these seven churches in Revelation, these specific communities. But also, angels are sent not just only large nations or parishes, but then they're also sent to individuals. Uh, For example, in uh, the book of Tobit, which is an apocryphal book, uh, you have an angel coming to, well, both Tobit and his son, Tobias, individually to assist them, to aid them. Uh, And then Psalm 91, for God shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. The sense that angels are sent even to individuals to care for them. Um, This develops over time. Uh, In Acts 12, you have this kind of strange story, and this doesn't really prove anything, but it, it It could work, where Peter is put in jail, and then he's released from jail, and he comes back to the house where all the Christians are staying, and he knocks on the door. Remember, the servant girl comes to the door, and he says, well, tell everyone I'm here, and she goes back and says, Peter's at the front door, and they say, no, it must be his angel. His angel. It's interesting how it states. Now, maybe that meant for them it's his soul or a ghost of him thinking that he might have been killed, but... Uh, Maybe it was a consideration of his own angel. But then from the mouth of Christ himself, who says in Matthew 18, which we read at our Mass of St. Michael and Archangels, uh, that the little ones in heaven, their angels behold the face of my Father. That the little ones have angels themselves. This idea of angels protecting or caring for individuals. Not every theologian of the church goes there. Uh, uh, Pseudo Dionysus, who is uh, one of the authority figures of angels, he doesn't actually defend guardian angels for every single person. He says, well, angels go and he, he was so into hierarchies that he says angels support a king and the king in turn supports his people. That's as low as an angel will go. It'll just go to the king and not to his, his peons. Uh, but then you find in others like Chrysostom, who thinks that because of the special place of the church, uh, that God has granted an angel for every single baptized person in the church. I like that a lot more, so we're going to go with that. <laughs> how, how specific, then, can we think about the acts of an angel, and especially in the sense for us as each, each and every individual? Uh, let's take a look at what an angel does then. Uh, Thomas Aquinas states that only God... Only God gives grace. Uh, And that is the grace, anything from salvific grace uh, all the way down to even uh, a natural grace. Only God can do that because that is, uh, that. yeah, we won't go into that. But God does appoint angels to mediate between God and man uh, spiritual enlightenment. This is the role. So 
and this is because the physical world is the place where God protects us but or, 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 or leads us back to him, but we're both physical and spiritual at the same time. And so he uses the angels to give us this spiritual knowledge to, to grow us into him. Um, so let's take a look. And I've kind of summarized them following a little bit of St. Bonaventure that then's come through uh, another theologian named Suarez a, a lot later on, but kind of five different actions of an angel. The first one is that an angel will ward off danger, both to our souls and to our bodies. Uh, They do this by intervening directly. Angels can intervene directly on our external reality. And they can act on our imagination to ward off evil. So, for example, uh, the Woodies almost had a head-on collision three weeks ago, four weeks ago now. Uh, and Gary came up to me right after. He said, I think, I think our guardian angel was looking after us. And I said, well, you actually had two guardian angels working for you at that point. Um, but that is actually an external... That, that would be an external act that an angel would perform to ward you from and protect you from danger. Then on the spiritual side, an angel can act on our imagination to ward off evil. Uh, to if we are entering into uh, uh, you know a evil situation, an angel can bring thoughts of light, can bring thoughts of peace to us to ward us from evil. Uh, second, angels can incite our souls to good and turn them from evil. Uh, this is probably this is primarily by instruction, uh, by helping us learn the truths of the faith in order uh, to incite our souls uh, to the good. Third, angels can counteract directly the malevolent activity of demons. Uh, that This is not just an angel looking out for us, but an angel working against uh, the, the work of demons around us. Uh, probably we might not find out too much about that work specifically. Um, that might be something uh, that we will never know, but it's really clear in Revelation how Michael and his angels literally fight with Satan uh, to move them and to direct them. Fourth is that angels present our prayers to God. Uh, this is clear in Revelation, uh, in actually two different passages in Revelation where the angels are seen as the censors, the thurifers, who are taking the incense, which is the prayers of the us, the prayers of the church on earth, and they're taking them and they're bringing them up to the altar of God. Now, this isn't because uh, angels or, or God's kind of, you know, God's really busy, so he needs angels to kind of bring him prayers one at a time. Or it's not that God doesn't really care, and so it's like, well, angels, you take care of it, and you just tell me what's really important. No, this is the angel's kind of intercessory role. That as, kind of, kind of, as a fraternity of, of the body of Christ, the angels are intercessing for us and bringing our prayers to God. And then the final thing that angels do is that they can help correct us. That angels can introduce into our imaginations uh, the right thing, the correct thing. 
And by that, kind of working with our conscience to correct us from when we sin. So five different actions. They're warding off danger. They're inciting the soul to good. They're counteracting demonic activity. They're presenting our prayers to God, and they're correcting us when we need. Angels do all of those things by persuasion, not by force. Both angels and demons cannot make you do anything, but they work by persuasion, by acting upon the physical world and our imaginations to present things, to propose things, to persuade things to us. Our job is to be attentive to the ideas that are coming into our heads, to the images that are, are, are being aroused in our imaginations, and then to be judging those things. Uh, angelic activity, it comes from outside of us. It comes from without, uh, without, you know, uh, without our bodies. And it's a contact with a personality. These angels are, are, are subjects. These are persons. That's the interaction with an angel. Uh, and because they're angelic, they're helping mirror to us divine glory in all that they do. So what could be hints of angelic action in your life? Uh, I don't know if any of you have experienced you know, a time of intense uh, prayer or in a time of intense affliction, whether physically or from another person, uh, and having struggled through it, in the end you have a resolve of peace within you that makes no sense. That's angelic activity. That's what I'm talking about. This introduction from without, from outside of you, that is proposing um, a way of walking in the light, proposing peace and comfort to you. There's this uh, movie by Vim Vendors. What, what is it called? Uh, oh, I forget it now. Yeah. You just shout it out. That's not the name of it. There's this movie by Vim Vembers. It's black and white, and it's about an angel who's kind of struggling with his uh, identity as an angel. I would maybe put it that way. Um, Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire, right. And there's, but there's this beautiful scene when there's a single shot uh, in a library and of people studying. And you'll see it comes across uh, this one person who's just kind of like struggling with the idea. And the angel comes and, and just whispers in his ear. And the man goes, ah, right, I've got it. That's the angelic activity. Or there's someone in, in the library who's just kind of sitting there, not reading, and just, you can tell they're, they're depressed and they're worrying. And the angel comes and just hugs him. And the person is still, you know, he's still there, and he just lets out a sigh of relief. That's angelic activity. All these angels look a little bit like Albert Camus. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird movie. I'm... Yeah, they all wear trench coats the whole time. It's bizarre. Yeah, and that that scene in particular is, I mean, I think it's actually quite theological accurate, except that they're in bodies and things like that. But uh, that gives you a sense of what we're talking about, of angelic activity, in, in which they are warding off danger, or citing us to good, or counteracting demonic activity, or presenting our prayers, or correcting us. 
So oh, there's there's another in that library scene. There's another instance where nobody can see these angels. I mean, they're invisible, uh, except at one, there's one scene where the angel looks over at, the, at a table and he winks. It's a little kid who, and and Vimber's point is is that maybe maybe a little child at some point can catch a glimpse of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe that's just some. All right, so to conclude um, our our topic of angels, uh, I just kind of want to go over what what then, how should we kind of approach, what what should be your relationship to thinking about angels from here on out? Uh, I don't think uh, you should go looking for angels, right? Because you can't see them. Um, And I also think there's a a great story, I think it's actually from Athanasius, uh, where there's a monk in the wilderness uh, who's walking along in deep prayer and his students are behind him and his students see two angels walking with him. And after the walk, they come back and they said, Master, did you see those angels walking with you? And he said, well, yeah, but if I paid attention to them, I would stop praying. So the sense that angels are not to be the center of our attention but by being more attentive to angelic activity, I think it will help us approach our lives and view our spiritual lives and view our ends better. It might be helpful, as it has been to me, to view that one of the purposes of your life is to gain angelic knowledge. Not human knowledge, but angelic knowledge, where you see the world as God sees the world. And there is another creature that does that. We're not alone in this. There is a creature, an angel, who can see the world as God sees it. We struggle with that. It takes us a long time to do that. So, when now, I, how I want you to think about angels is kind of in a threefold way. The first thing is with gratitude. In that, to be in gratitude for the angel's help for us. Uh, but also in admiration of angels because they are superior to us. At the same time, they honor us because Christ took on humanity, right? Uh, so there's a, there's a mutual admiration, but we should admire the angels for their superior, superior way of understanding creation. There are, even within the early church, there's many common references of asking angels directly for help. Uh, uh, Ambrose was a big uh, proponent of that. Origen hated that. So, uh, but there is many references throughout the church of, of asking angels specifically for their help uh, because of that admiration that we have for their nature. And then finally, to approach angels with thanksgiving to be thankful that the way that God has created creation is to give us an entire order to assist and to help us in our life. Uh, We are both men and angels working towards a common end. And so we have common actions like worshiping God. And in the mass, we join the angels in perfect worship with God every single time we say the Mass. Whoever is there, if you're there, you are, you are performing a perfect action with the angels. And so, be thankful uh, for who they are, what they are, 
and then what they do for us. Now we have a little bit more time, about 10 minutes, uh, and I think I want to stop there. We're going to not talk about demonic activity uh, and the work of demons. Um, Go read, yeah, go read the screw tape letters. Uh, there's some wonderful things there. But I would like to entertain maybe some of your questions about angels. I want to just say one thing and then, and then do that. But what, what Father Sean has given us is, is, the, is the teaching, uh, pretty much undisputed teaching of the church uh, from, uh, from its very earliest years. But it's strange, isn't it? What you've heard is pretty strange because it's not taught anymore. It's ignored. Uh, and um, uh, that, that's unfortunate for us. So I just want to say thank you. Oh, yeah, that you're welcome. A, an excellent job. As, as strange and weird as it is, that's the reality that we live in. Yeah, and, I, and on that, let me end with a quote that I skipped over, but I think it actually is really important. This is by Father Gilbert Shaw, who wrote a wonderful chapter on... Um, Uh, spiritual warfare and the activity of angels and the activity of demons. And he said this, the human intellect in the modern world has become obsessed with the material out of which man was made and for the sake of which he was also created spirit. Uh, That knowing the order below him of which he partakes, he should, man should be uh, material's priest to offer it to God. We've become so obsessed with just the material that we have failed to see the end of the material world, which is to offer it to God. And then he goes on. Man fails to look to the spiritual end. He only envisages temporal ends and falls back into the domination of instincts. And so he has forfeited the spiritual perception in and through which he should have been able to cognize the personalities of the spiritual sphere. And so one of the reasons why this goes untalked about or untaught so much is because of uh, the culture in which we're, we're, we're growing up in and we're living in, which is so material that we, we can't even name the end for material things, of thinking that there's a purpose to a tree beyond just giving oxygen or helping defend against climate change. Uh, there's a greater end to all of that. And that end is only found in God. Uh, that's the sort of thinking that we need to do. And I think learning about angels kind of opens that up a little bit so we can keep talking. About it. All right. Any questions? Otherwise, Austin will start telling his story. How many can dance on the head of a pin? That is the question, right? Uh, Never found in medieval scholastic theology, as you know, as a medieval expert. Um, And um, also kind of the the funny question of of misinterpreting angels as material beings, right? Um, In that sense. So it is interesting, though, that Thomas does seek after the question of, can you have two angels in the same place attending to the same thing? And Thomas answers, no. You would only have one angel in one particular place. Now, this is because angels interact with place in a very different way than we do. 
uh, and we're not going to get it. We don't have to go, go there. But it is kind of actually fun that Thomas would actually say, if that was a real question, it'd probably only be one. Yep, they have kept gravity going. They're doing very well on that. We should be thankful for their work on that front. Yeah. No. Yes. Yeah, so they, they take on a form, and this is uh, how the church often talks about it, is distinguishing between um, uh, the actual substance of an angel and the accidental forms that they can take on, right? Accidental meaning um, just a, like the, an accident of that chessboard is its brownness, right? So it takes on a feature uh, that's just an accidental to it. It doesn't mean it was by mistake. It means it's not part of the essence of it, right? So angels can take on uh, a material body, uh, and that's actually disputed how they take on material bodies, but they can take on a material form, a visible form, but it's never part of their essence. They can take it on as an accidental quality, but not as an actual part of their essence. Um, uh, the way Thomas Aquinas explains it, which I think is really fascinating, is that he says it's like a moving fog. And when you shine a light from a fog into a fog, it can create kind of like a glare up. He says that's how an angel takes on a body. It's like a light shining in a fog. But then you get to the really interesting pass in Genesis 6, which talks about the sons of God marrying the sons of man, or the daughters of man, and forming the Nephilim. And what he does he mean by that uh, could mean the demons marrying the daughters of men. And in that sense, well, can the demons take on a physical quality? No. And how would then they actually marry? And so it's, it's some weird stuff. But no, in general, we just say, no, they can only, they can take something on, but that's not part of their essence. You know, let me just make a comment about that too, because Eve, uh, Eve didn't just fall for that. Uh, I mean, Eve, not Eve, uh, Eve did actually fall for it. Uh, Mary, Mary didn't just fall for that. Uh, she tested it. I mean, what, what we focus on most of the time is the fiat, let it be unto me according to thy word. But before she said that, uh, the angels told her that she was going to have a child. And she said, wait a minute, I know a little biology. I've never known a man. How can that be? That's very important because what she did was, she that's, that's the discernment. She used her mind and her intellect to, to, to discern whether or not this being here was a malevolent or a benevolent uh, being. And, and because of the answer that, that she got, she understood then that this was from God. But testing the spirits is very important. Paul says that Satan appears as an, or was it Jesus? Some One of them. In, 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 in the New Testament, you have the notion that, un, that the devil himself appears as an angel of light. And so those appearances all, always have to be discerned and tested. Yeah. Awesome. Like depictions of angels and iconography or church art, that's based on 
the Ark of the Covenant and like the cherubim there, or like where, kind of like, I guess it looks, is there a good basis for the way they're depicted in like classical iconography? Yeah, and, and Father Mark and I were just uh, texting about this uh, last week, I think, about it, there's this weird passage in, when Stephen's being martyred, or right before he's martyred, and they say his face became like that of an angel. It's like, well, wait a second. How did they know angelic faces? Like, what did that mean for them? Uh, but then I think, I think clearly it's going back to the temple about the orders of how to carve cherubim, right? And there you see that idea. Now, all of those ideas of the image of an angel have to do with the nature of an angel. Uh, so their wings are just letting you know, I can, you know, symbolically that here is a messenger, you will sometimes in iconography, I actually have an icon in my office from Bob with Christ having wings. Not in the sense that he's an angel, but in the sense that he is the messenger. And so that's why angels have wings, right? And then the eyes signify uh, intellectual insight and truth. And we can go on from there. The fire is the, is the love. And all those sort of things are uh, symbolic images for us to understand the nature of the angel their essences, which are not physical. Yeah, and those symbolic uh, uh, descriptions are 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 verbally ex- uh, verbally but but for word in the in the Old Testament. Right. <coughs> in the year of the king Uzziah died, right. I saw the Lord high lifted up in his train and and smoke filled the temple. And there were and then he named cherubim and seraphim with six wings. Yep. That kind of thing. So you have descriptions like that throughout the Old Testament as well. And pseudo-Dionysus will tell you what every single description really means (laughs) with a grain of salt. Um, Let me end then with a quote to um, give you a little bit of teaser if we ever do talk about kind of uh, spiritual warfare with demons. Uh, But this is what I want to kind of leave you on about thinking about how to interpret angelic activity and then also demonic. This is also by Father Gilbert Shaw. And we'll end with this. Uh, if an impression, like an idea, if it is spiritual, the suggestion from that source is going to always be towards unity and bring peace. The suggestion from the fiend, the devil, when it is fully and rationally faced, always in the long run has to declare itself as being what it is, an untruth. The demon will play on the unconscious levels that lie within the personality and may also bring to bear upon it images and phantoms built up upon the imaginations and actions of other men. The answer in all cases is to discriminate rationally whatever may be presented, whether it comes from the chatter in the brain, distorting thought, or through the promoting of images through the imaginative faculty. It will be through a ruthless analysis and discrimination that such suggestions can be brought under control and so discriminated as what they are. That can only be done well in Christ, who has restored our process or our human faculties uh, to a much deeper sense than what they are in fallen man. But your job is to as he's a ruthless analysis of the thoughts and images that come into your head. That means for good and for ill. And, and that's intellectual. And that's an intellectual that's process. And being intelligent about it. Not just discerning a feeling or something. So try it for a day. Try it for a week. And then 
let us know what you think. Uh, and then hopefully we'll be able to talk maybe in the spring about spiritual warfare with demons. Uh, and I can continue that a little bit more, perhaps. Thank you all very much.